0: You're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast. This podcast is available on Spotify, iTunes and Audioboom and via the Thoroughly Good blog at www.thoroughlygood.me. Please rate, like and share the podcast via Twitter and Facebook. To get in contact, email john.jacob at thoroughlygood.me, message at Thoroughly Good on Twitter or post a message on the Thoroughly Good Facebook page. This Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast number 26 came about at an unprecedented speed following on from the British Phonographic Industry announcement on Saturday the 12th of January, the contents of which, uh, an increase in classical music streaming and physical sales, was reported by news organisations, radio networks, journalists and commentators. Uh, The announcement didn't go down well with everyone necessarily. I had some issues with it. The previous podcast, number 25, illustrates what those thoughts and frustrations were for me. The announcement also piqued the interest of arts marketer and commentator Yehuda Shapiro and Signum Classic's Steve Long, whose response in a Guardian article I've also included in the episode description. The three of us got together on Thursday, the 17th of January, to share perspectives, that of producer marketer and customer in what was an invigorating conversation one that is included here in its entirety
1: I'm Steve Long and I run two companies one is Floating Earth a recording and production company founded in 1987 and the other is Signal Records founded in 1997
0: and you are a percussionist
1: I am a closet and amateur percussionist. Oh, wow. Well, you're, you're quick to clarify. But you, yeah. you studied percussion at college. No, I studied economics at college. Oh. I learnt to play percussion from the age of eight, and I still play. Oh. Um, but I'm not. Uh,
0: Do they pay you to play?
1: Uh, yes. Right. They rarely ask for their money back, so that's good.
0: So, te- that technically makes you a professional musician, doesn't it?
1: It does, in that I get paid to play. But yes. I'm, I'm glad I don't rely on it to eat. Ah, oh, that's an entirely...
2: Okay, fine. Uh, so... I'm I'm Yehuda Shapiro and I've been an independent marketing consultant and writer since 2000. Uh, I spent 10 years in the classical record industry and after that moved into digital media. And my last full-time job was as marketing director of FT.com, the website of the Financial Times. So I've got quite a diverse background which spans classical music and digital media. When were you at the FT? It was in the late 90s. It was a long time ago, in the early days of the internet. Goodness me. And it was a transformative experience for me. Yes. Yeah.
0: Uh, I worked at Financial Times Interactive Data in the, right. late, in the late 90s uh, and I remember going to FT.com and it was a big deal, FT.com was a big deal at that time. It
2: was a big deal, it was, very, it was a very, very exciting time. It was. Gra- yeah. I
0: got the impression, as I recall it, it was groundbreaking because it was, it was dealing with
2: incoming data and processing it in a way that was useful for the audience. And it was only the early days of that yes. and just skipping ahead slightly, one of the things that interests me is that that was pioneering 20 years ago yet I still get the impression the classical industry doesn't see things that way yet. Yes. And that fascinates me. There we are.
0: And it's, uh, now I know that, I'm, I'm reminded how easy it is to forget about those periods of time when things were innovating. It's very easy to, mm. yeah, very easy to forget that 20 mm. years ago, actually, there was a lot of excitement around the internet. There was a massive amount of investment mm. and a lot of risk-taking as well, as I <laughs> um, uh, Well, you know who I am. Obviously, I don't need to. Well, I hope you do, <laughs> yeah. otherwise it's gonna be a very awkward conversation. We all we all read from the BPI the thing that I'm particularly interested in is from this conversation is trying to get some some broader understanding of where that, that announcement fits in the greater scheme of things. Because I know that when I read it I feel quite angry. Um, and I don't know whether that's me just being um, slightly naive. But I've had it quite a narrow definition of um a narrow definition of classic music which perhaps didn't really represent the entire the entire industry um, and because I write a blog every day I got particularly exercised about that that's really the premise that's really the starting point um, what I'm keen to hear first of all is your thoughts on it because it might be that you have a different you hold a different view on that announcement and it, this is not about
1: criticising the announcement by the way who wants to go first? <laughs> Oh, I'm happy to. Um, and I've sat on the BPI classical committee for a, a few years now, uh, and it's quite rare that there's a good news story that we have to tell. Um, and I think the increase in turnover and uh, in various formats was actually a good news story, because up until now, a lot of people have been saying how physical is dying, um, and digital is taking, taking its place, but not at the right rate. Um, but this is a good news story about physical increasing as well. And it's probably the only genre that can say that.
0: So it was good. In, in from your perspective, it was good because it was talking about an increase in
1: physical sales of classical music CDs. Uh, is that is no? That, um? It was it was an increase in all format or digital and physical. Um, and to me, that shows that digital hasn't crucified physical. Physical is now going back up, um, which it hasn't done for a number of years. And that's got to be a good thing because it, it is a, a difficult time for physical. The supply chain is is broken. Uh, we've got so few shops now, um, it's a lot harder to buy a CD, so to increase sales, I think is, is a good news story.
0: And physical is important for you because obviously you derive greater revenue streams from
1: physical sales. Yeah, I mean, it still represents just over 50% of our um, sales. Um, and it's nice to see it increasing. Um, it's not increasing as a percentage of our turnover, but the turnover generally has, has gone up. And everyone had been saying how is dying, but you know, you could, it's still you know, the format of choice for a lot of classical people, and you can't sign the download at a concert. No, Okay, it's, it's interesting that given the
0: premise <laughs> of the discussion, <laughs> I was seeking reassurance, and actually I haven't found that from you yet. So <laughs> uh, Maybe you can help here, Well,
2: I, th- I think my main interest and concern is actually I think that the classical market I, th- I think actually it was too broad a definition of the classical market because it includes a lot of say film scores and for want of a better word crossover I know it's not a fashionable word yeah which is which is absolutely fair enough, but I think it's a big mistake to see the classical market as a monolithic market, and I think the way the digital world has developed it's all about niches so I think in a sense it's a bit disingenuous of Radio 3 to crow about this this growth in sales when in fact 8 out of 10 of the best selling albums were the kind of stuff that Radio 3 wouldn't play Mm. and I'm not saying that all these different niches and genres have a place but I think consumers there's some consumers who do know the difference between core classical and what people might term neoclassical but there's some people who don't know the difference between those two which again is fair enough but they need to be treated differently and I think the classical market needs... I've always felt this. I felt this when I was working at it 30 years ago, that it needs to work in terms of thinking of its consumers, not just in terms of pushing out product. And I think this sort of exemplifies that, that dilemma, in a sense. Yeah,
1: I, I don't disagree with that. I think it would be great if we could um, dig deeper into the numbers and see what is selling and what's not. Um, and maybe those stats, when they got released, didn't do that. But I think the fact is, if there's something that's... You know, allegedly good news than to shout about it could benefit um, every part of the classical I mean, I business. completely agree
2: yeah. with you but the, the trouble is that it was kind of it stopped there, that oh, the sales have gone up and that's not the way the world works anymore, I probably never did but these days data is so readily available and there's such a high degree of transparency. I mean, if you go onto Amazon, you know what's selling and what isn't selling. Sure. As, as a consumer, imagine that in the old days, being able to go into a retailer's database and know what's selling or not selling. Mm. And just talking about retail, another, th- another point you said that CDs are quite difficult to get hold of, but my feeling is they're much easier to get hold of. Because um, you know when I was a kid, I used to have to schlep up to London from Chichester to buy my LPs at HMV Bond sure. Street. Yeah. And these days you go online, you get it the next day. I mean, it's so wonderful. In an ideal world you do. I mean, I yeah. think Amazon as a customer,
1: is a fantastic experience Um, but i think we're all struggling now to get our releases as a record label struggling to get our releases into amazon um, in quite the same way that you can get them into a a bricks and mortar store so yes you can go online and you can find it there Um, and it might say um, you know five to seven weeks Mm -hmm. delivery at which point you think i think i'll try and find somewhere else and it's actually worse in america than it is here and 90 percent of classical titles are not available on amazon Dot com.
2: And how about the experience of the specialist classical retailers then? Like? I
1: think for some of them it's improving. If you look at the likes of Archive in America and Presto Classical here, they will get it to you within two to three days. Mm. Um, so, you know, we are well served mm. by uh, a much smaller number of shops. You know, there one? is no classical um, specialist in Scotland. There is one classical music department in London now, and that's part of a bookshop.
0: Why uh you find out loads of things there. First of all, thanks for reassuring me, Yehuda. I thought I was the only one in the room who was annoyed. So that's that's great. <laughs> no, not so much annoyed as I just feel. I actually feel it's a missed
2: opportunity. Yes, that, that's yes. what frustrates me.
0: Uh, I I found some of the messaging around it. Uh, I think I think the problem was compounded by uh, journalism that didn't necessarily uh, bottom out what the message was, and then it was sort of framed in a um, framed in a way that just made me feel quite irritated. Anyway (laughs) Uh, um, Steve, you were talking about some things that really surprised me there. You said that 90% of classical music CDs are not available on Amazon.
1: Amazon Amazon.com America, yes. Why is that? Um, (laughs) I'm sorry. If I'm going to be (laughs) contentious it's because they're not really very interested in stocking and selling them. They are much more interested in the marketplace, Amazon marketplace fulfilling all of that and then taking percentage. Which they do incredibly well. Um, And this is actually data that I only got on Monday from my US distributor when I was complaining that our new releases are not available for pre-order, we were told that actually 90% of new releases will not be available on Amazon.com and it's getting worse. Uh,
0: Where do you derive most of your physical sales from in the UK? Uh,
1: Via our UK distributor who sells into retail, Um, that includes Amazon but the bricks and mortar retail, that's the the majority of our UK sales generated via them. Uh,
0: the thing I I have some assumptions about why people still buy or why classical music listeners still buy physical. Uh, and my assumption is that it's around that it's not around sound quality necessarily, but to do with contextual information. But I I wonder whether that's
1: I me being that's slightly naive. No, I think some people say they prefer the sound quality of a CD to um, a lot of digital formats. Um, the opposite of that is that people are now buying studio-quality masters, so even better than CD quality as a download. But the, the feeling that we get is that they like the booklet and they like to be able to read it whilst listening on their CD player, um, and they like to give them its presence and have, I have
2: them signed. chip here on that one? On one. is another thing that interests me about this is that one always says this is what we think about our consumers. And again, my first job was in an advertising agency when I was, literally, I was having to work on moisturizer and there was nothing that the manufacturer didn't know about their customers. And classical consumers are, we have our—we make our assumptions about mm, them, mm. but it would be so easy to go out there and ask them what they want, and to track what they want. I mean, it's it's traditional consumer stuff, which is very, it used to be very difficult and expensive to do. And again, mm. since the world has gone digital, it's cheap and quick and quite accurate. And again, it's something, it's almost, I think, Again, that announcement seemed to exemplify this to me—that people would rather not quite face the truth on things. We want—I know this is a culture, but we want the world wants to push out good messages these days. It's—it's it's very much good news. Hey, hey, fantastic! Hey, guys! <coughs> Rainbows um, and yeah. unicorns. So but some—it's—it's it's good to know. It's always better to know a little bit what people really think than make assumptions about what people really think. And—and and again, I, it's nice that it's such an expert industry, and it's nice that it's driven by still driven by A&R people who really care about the product. I mean, that is vitally important to me as someone who loves classical music. But on the other hand, we know there are people out there who don't particularly like classical music or might just like classical music, but go out and ask them. And even as a core consumer of classical music, I mean, I consume more, more live music than recorded music as a, as a consumer these days. But, and also, uh, and I'm a, I write about music, Yet no musical institutions ever said to me, I'd like to know what you think about our product.
0: Mm. And why, I, do you, why do you think they're not asking you that?
2: I think it's because it's not in the culture. It's never been in the culture in all the time I've had contact with. And I also think there's a bit of fear there. There's a bit of fear about hearing bad news from your, from your potential consumers, which is one of the best things you can do, really, is to understand what you're getting wrong and what you're getting right. And what bad news might they hear? <laughs> you know what i I can't say because I'm so inside inside the product and inside the market I mean, for instance, this whole business about conductors needing to talk to their audiences. I'd rather a conductor didn't talk to me because I've been going to concerts for forty five mm-hmm. years and i I sort of like that distance, but in that sense, I'm probably might be a bit of a dinosaur, but I admit that um so I would love you know I would. L- Something I suggested to someone a couple of years ago was why not do a completely industry wide research project where everyone contributes to an industry wide research project so everyone can benefit from a deeper understanding of classical consumers across the range. And what did they say to you? Well, they thought it was a good idea and then it disappeared into nowhere. I mean, maybe I should relaunch it. I mean, it's something I've thought about for years, but it was, I think both the recording organisations and the performing organisations would do well to all get together and really understand their consumers. Is it, is it apathy, is
0: it, is it fear, or is it sort of uh, a lack of resources? That I think, has I think the been excuse will be doing that it's that? a
2: lack of resources, which is understandable, but these days, you know, you can put a survey online, and it won't be that necessarily that scientific in its sampling, but you can get, I reckon you could get 2,000 people in London to give you their opinions on classical music, for example. And how, how do you think that might help? Sorry, it it sounds very corny, but you know, again, from from when I used to be in marketing. Again, as I said, when I worked at EFT, it was transformative for me because suddenly you had a return path on your Hmm. consumers immediately. So you sent out an email, and they they went to the website, or they didn't go to the website. Before, let's let's do a brochure. So you'd spend a fortune, a lot of time doing a brochure, send it out, and never know what happened. And it's. it's like a conversation as opposed as opposed to me standing there at speaker's corner having a shout at everybody, I can actually engage in a conversation with people so how might that data
1: help you Steve um, I think if we knew what our consumers wanted it it may not necessarily make us go and record and release it I think we you know, there's as we alluded to at the beginning there's the term classic is a very broad term, and we are not really in the our label is not in the business of doing crossover. Mm. Um, having said that, we won a Grammy for Best Classical Crossover in 2008. What before. was that for? Uh, the King Singers, an album called Simple Gifts. Uh, it was the last year they had that category. But it's not really what we do. And if the majority of people say they want crossover, it's not going to make us suddenly start doing crossover. We would rather find the audience for what we do release. Um, and nowadays, you get pretty, pretty quick feedback from sales... Um, if you put something out it could get a fantastic review and still not sell um, and that means that the market perhaps isn't there for it um, and we're constantly surprised with sometimes we'll put out an album and it'll do much better than we'd expected and sometimes complete opposite but it doesn't, that doesn't mean we then just put out lots more albums like the one that sold well I no. think we, we need to have a very diverse offering I'm struck by, uh, that, that that is
0: reflected obviously in the, in the catalogue uh, and in the range of music that I've been introduced to as a result of being sent review copies of Signal, uh, Signal yeah. albums, uh, reviews then are important to you. Are they useful to you?
1: Uh, they're important. They're useful if they're good, because you can, <laughs> you can <laughs> quote from them. <laughs> but if they're bad, you don't quote from them. Um, I think it's nice. It's like awards. Yeah, you know, It's nice for the label. It's nice for the artist. You can put a sticker on your CD, and it'll sell a few more. Um, it's an endorsement, and everyone likes to have a positive endorsement of yes, the Yes, because last of year all
0: of, your, all of your CDs had label had of the CD, year. had um, gramophones. Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah, it did elevate it. It not was, that it was not good. Not that it needed No, label. I mean,
1: it, it did a lot of good for us and it, it meant some people who hadn't heard of us then had heard of us and other people took us a lot more seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, we were inundated with more people wanting to be on the label which is not always good. Uh, but no, it's a, it's a very good thing for us and it is, it's a fantastic Is that accolade. because you have to have difficult conversations or have to be no you can have very short conversations um, <laughs> <laughs> but it does mean that you have to reply I, mean, I will always reply to anyone who says I'd like to be on your label um, and I probably get them weekly now rather than monthly see I hadn't I, didn't, I hadn't expected the conversation to take this
0: direction but I am fascinated in that um, you've You've got to be quite bold actually to be able to email somebody and say, I'd like you to do this for me. I I (laughs) I mean that's effectively what's going on.
1: I had a first this morning. I had a tweet from someone who I won't name saying But we can find it. (laughs) (laughs) It was a message, not a tweet. (laughs) (laughs) So I hope you can't. (laughs) Saying I'd like to be on your label. Right. That was it. Oh. That was the pitch. Yeah. Right. To which I responded, Here's my email address, to tell me more.
2: You'd, you'd heard of the
1: person, presumably. I had, <laughs> yes. Um. And that wouldn't have happened five years ago. No. It would have been... You know, I kind I of think, think but you really ought to be making a little bit more... And not you, but
0: as in the person who is messaging you, a, a little bit more effort. You should do. there was a time when you used
2: to send a letter and a biography... And, and a, a I, demo. I, yeah, yeah. yeah. But that yeah. kind of immediacy, I mean, I think it's fantastic, that kind of immediacy exists between your customers and you as well. Yeah. I think that's what's so incredible. The fact that you can get a customer saying, I like that or I didn't like that, mm. it, within... But, hours of
0: release of the. I mean, imagine, But that's fine, isn't it? If, if a customer comes back, says, "I liked that," but, yeah. but for somebody to pitch, <laughs> no, and say, no, no. Yeah, but, I,
2: but it's that. But it's it, it's that immediacy. What's extraordinary is the immediacy of the relationships. Mm. I mean, even the way this podcast was set up. That it would have taken six weeks to do this yes. in the old days, and. Yeah, my it, fax machine's yeah, yeah, roll, exactly, maybe. exactly. <laughs> or, <laughs> they faxed you in Cambridge, <laughs> didn't they? <laughs> but even something like you were talking about, you know, mm. in all the stuff that's traditionally been done in the classical industry is fantastic. I love all the awards, and all, mm. you need all that because it's it's showbiz essentially. Yeah. But for instance, when it comes to um, catalog items, with you know, if an item doesn't do terribly well when it's first released, there's no reason why a couple of few months later you can't have another go at it mm. and in that time you could understand a bit more about what people liked and didn't like about the album and what kind of people like the album what kind of people didn't like the album and then you can work at targeting them yeah. and I believe I believe you can I don't think it's that I don't think it can be that
1: difficult but now you have different ways of targeting you know you <laughs> yeah. might release a CD and it doesn't do as well as you'd hoped but then you you can remarket it digitally yes um, as a download or as a stream and different releases have different audiences um, and you for the digital side you can get that feedback immediately and I, I've got a an album we put out in the end of 2015 and the group did a video to go with it and this video is the first one we had that went viral um, and over a 10 day period um, the video is viewed a million times and we sold a thousand downloads of that album and you could chart the the video views and the album downloads now I don't think that would happen now, and you could still get your million video views. But then people would rush off and stream it. They what was what
0: was the video? Who they who were they? And what it was were they the doing?
1: Choral Scholars from the University College of Dublin, right? Um, and so not necessarily your go-to artist. No, and it was Irish and Scottish folk songs. Um, okay. And if I can plug it, we're doing another one in you March must. coming you must. out. It was a follow-up <laughs> CD called Perpetual Twilight. But what was the video? The video was a. Video. I mean, it wasn't just like a straight performance. It was a video of, um, there's a tenor solo, and he, there's a video straight shot of him with a choir behind. There's no bells and whistles. It wasn't MTV productions or anything like that. It was just a nicely shot video with a fantastic piece of music behind it. And where did
0: the sales come from, geographically?
1: Uh, geographically, it was, US was our biggest market. Germany was our second biggest market. Uh, UK and Ireland was our third biggest market and do you now have any idea why that was the case none whatsoever except there's a lot of Irish pubs in Germany um, which I didn't know beforehand um, right. clearly there's a lot of we knew there'd be a following in America um, and we knew there'd be a following in Ireland but this video got picked up and and shared around the world and those are the three territories that really took it to heart
0: there is a tension between it strikes me there's a tension between the data-driven approach which you're advocating, mm-hmm. Yehuda, and, and actually your editorial-driven approach which is um, want to find the, the best artist, the best content and then find the audience for that. We would like I to have I think, the I, data,
2: I, I, think they're, I don't think they're sort of, as it were, mutually exclusive. I think no. the thing is, I, yeah, it's, again, as I said, I think it's very important to have people with vision and creativity and courage mm. to push product out there. But it, it's more how you tailor the way it sold in mm. and then follow up on that because what ha- again this is something I've, I've been involved in the industry for 35 years it, the product's shoved out if it doesn't do very well you sort of think oh we didn't do it very well oh, let, let's do the next one and in the meantime that if you invested all that money in that product there might be different ways of, of mm. getting people excited we, about it.
1: We would love to have access yeah. to that data as an additional yeah. tool to everything else that we do I don't believe that that data then says that record you're going to put out next week will be a much better success um, there is still a lot of hit and miss and I, I don't think any label knows the answers, be it a major or an indie or a one-man band. Um, and that's why I find it all fascinating. <laughs>
0: I'm re- uh, Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded actually that uh, of another perspective, which is something that you might release a few years ago. Again, this is a, another assumption based on something that I discovered over Christmas on the Champs Hill label, which was the David Reese williams trio doing... Mm. uh, Yeah, Yeah. and that was released in 2011 Mm. and I heard one track and that was seven years ago. So I wonder whether a certain number of albums that one releases that perhaps just remain dormant and then for one reason or another suddenly they
1: they rock We actually look after the logistics and distribution so I, I know that in December that album sold well. Mm. Um, because it's a Christmas album and mm. we, yeah, we put out a Christmas album every year because they always sell very well we have a couple of albums that are Christmas albums that sell all year round because they're more artist driven um, but we've never deleted a, a, an item because they always do come back and you never know when they will and we've got um, albums that sell digitally very well in America um, and we, have, we can, can't explain why it's not unique repertoire it's not artists who ever visit America but someone a lot of people take them to heart
0: so did you see did you see that spike in sales between did, 2011 probably. and 2018 uh, yes yes does that suggest because I heard it on the radio I heard it on Radio 3 mm. and I don't listen to Radio 3 very often not anymore <laughs> um, but that's a whole other podcast uh, and it was solely because of hearing it in that playlist Hm. Mm. It's, it's a nice album. Yeah, yeah. and it's, it's all gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. that's interesting. Uh, you had your hand up and then I basically talked over you. I'm sorry. <laughs> do you remember your point? I, no.
2: It's, it's gone now, it's gone now. <laughs> I, think we've, I think we've moved on from it. How do you, ago. how,
0: uh, the question that arose for me when I was thinking about this last night was, how is it given your approach, Steve, that you have maintained a resilience in terms of, you know, it would be very easy, for example, to if something hasn't sold to go okay actually how do you decide when then, when that particular product is no longer something worth backing
1: um, by product I mean artist Artist, really um, sometimes the sales speak for themselves but sometimes if we put out an album that has underperformed for one to a better experience it doesn't mean we're not going to do a follow up because we believe that you know, the second album might do a lot to promote, re promote the first one. Um, a lot of it comes down to whether or not I like it. Um, we don't have a, an AR committee or anything like that, and it, it's just me. Um, having said that, we work with a lot of artists now who um, do put together the AR that they think they're um, wanting to do. So, the Classical Opera Company and Paul McCreesh and the Philharmonia, they, they don't ask me what I want to record, they say, This is what we want to record. Um, what do you think about it? Uh, and they know their audience pretty well and what they're good at. Um, and so generally we, we, we discuss it and we agree on what we're going to put out and when we're going to put it out.
0: Why did you set up
1: the label in the first place? Well. <laughs> um, Have we started a long story? <laughs> no, not that long. Um, we set up Floating Earth to offer recording services to existing labels. Um, when the CD came out, there's lots of work. us so we started to engineer recordings we then branched out we were making 100 a year for sort of EMI and all all sorts of labels Um, and we realized that someone else was doing the editing so we poached an editor from Abbey Road and bought an editing system and put it in his front room so we then became an engineering and editing company of course the editor really wanted to be a producer so we told him he was a producer so then we could make We we had everything in-house to make a recording. For
0: those of us who uh, are unaware, what is the advantage of being both engineering and editing? Because surely, he says really simply, you are pressing record on a full
1: performance, which doesn't require editing. No. Okay, sorry. Back then, we weren't doing any live recording. We were sitting in a cold church in Berkshire, uh, recording probably 18 hours of takes to make a one-hour CD. So the editor chops them together to make okay. what the punter then buys right. so we at that point had everything required to make a recording and then the first downturn happened, probably in the early 90s and a lot of record labels then cut back on the recording programme but we had everything set up to make recordings there are a lot of artists out there who wanted to make recordings so we decided that we would make and own recordings and license them to those labels and we made 50 or 60 programmes like that <coughs> and during that time we were making the Gimel recordings with the, the Tallis scholars um, and I was approached by someone who wanted to record the complete works of Tallis, which had never been done before and I told him how much it was going to cost and he said he couldn't afford it so I said how much would it cost if we employed your choir he told me and we couldn't afford it but we thought between us we've got everything you need to make that happen so we launched Signum to record nine CDs of Tallis, and that was it And when the first three were available, we got distribution. um, And then a lot of early music performers who had been recording for other labels came to us and said, We'd like to be on your early music label. So I thought, okay, let's broaden it out, Um, which we did. um, And we became an early music label and we did 40 to 50 early music discs.
0: Your business started on the idea of recording
1: at that time a
0: really niche, untested. early music and no one of no, yeah, you was all 50 shades what did you, what, what did you see when,
1: did you see, well you obviously you saw opportunity then? Uh, we saw opportunity, we also saw the 50 albums that we had licensed out um, not giving us anything back, um, we lost control of them so the designs weren't something we had any control over and the sales figures weren't anything we had any control over so we'd given those masters away for no return and thought well let's give it a go. Um, and after five years, we started to be approached by musicians who weren't um, early musicians, and we were just saying, "No, we're an early music label. Let's uh, let's just focus on that." Um, and then we had—I had been involved with the dot com that we set up in 1998 and uh, folded in 2002. Um, so I had a bit more time on my hands, and I thought, "Well, let's look at <laughs> let's look at." Um, <coughs> are these artists who are approaching us. Um, so I pulled Signum in-house. Before then, it had been we had freelancers looking after it for us. So I moved it into the Floating Earth office. Um, and the first non-early music artist we took on was Tenebrae, um, and the second was the King Singers. And is that a, uh, I, I notice a lot of
0: vocal uh, repertoire in the catalogue. I wonder whether that is a
1: reflection of your own interests. Not at all. Okay. My, my interest is orchestral. Okay, um, right. And it's just, we, we became known as an early music label and then organ and choral. Um, but it has branched out massively since then. Um, and we've got some jazz and a lot of orchestras and some opera. Um, but we are still thought of as being a choral uh, label because that's where, where we started.
2: Because When I looked at your catalogue, I was surprised how diverse it was. And, I, mm. and, and, and is that a commercial thing as well as in the sense that you're um, spreading your risks? Or... It's partly commercial yeah. um, and it's partly what I like.
1: Yeah, um, I I like orchestral music. Yeah, and also when we set the label up, we couldn't have ever considered having the Philomonian Salon on the label, or and the MacRitchie and, and the Gabriellis on Signum. It just they were the purely there on the on the major labels. But as the industry changed, you know, they became um, available, if
2: you like, um, to record for small indies course again with, with the way with streaming or whatever the, the, I mean this is something I don't know have no insight into is the degree to which there is any f- loyalty to a label I mean in the old days they, people used to think there was a loyalty to a label I, again it was one of those so, things that people thought there was and
1: I think I, yeah. I think there was and I can speak from experience here you know, when I was buying um, before you know I got into the business I would gravitate towards Deutsche Grammophon because you knew it was going to be good um, I think that label loyalty is, is disappearing now. Oh, sure. I sure. I'd challenge you on that and say that,
0: actually, as a listener, as a punter, I do gravitate to Signum because I think I've listened to, and I'm not saying that because you're in the room, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is sponsored here. by... <laughs> uh, uh, but because every... I, I suppose, actually, it's also a reflection of the... Of the connection with the PR who sends me Signum content, so mm. you know I will I will listen to a lot of Signum content. But consistently, when I hear it, I always end end recording thinking I really enjoyed NAPS So I I would I disagree it, with you about. You see, again,
2: that. the interesting thing is again how typically are you of the consumer? Uh, well, no, consumer. I don't think I am. I You might you might you are probably mm. typical of a certain kind of consumer. This is what I'm this is what I'm saying is you. No no one is, a, is, is, is unique. Oh, so, you know. There, so there will be a bunch of people, probably a small bunch of people who think like you, who can be energised and exploited, pardon the expression, differently from a bunch of people who don't care so much about the label as long as they like what it sounds like, which is a completely different... Yeah. Okay. And, and, I, and, and I think that kind of thinking, I, I've yet to see anybody talking in that way about classical consumers, whereas it's the way, if you're selling a bog-standard consumer product like mm. blue Paper probably... You would think about you'd really segment your market and, and work each segment. If that's yeah. not a very good thing to talk I about <laughs> in terms of blue paper. But um, but it, it's that kind of. I feel very strongly that kind of questioning needs to be done because we all we, we all love we all love our opinions on classical music. Each one of us, and that's fine. But how many people think the same? How many people don't think the same? I
1: think it's great that if there is. Um, label loyalty, and actually, just giving the an idea, I'm going to put a, a Labrador puppy on the front of every CD. Um, <laughs> Please oh, we don't. We, don't, we, don't, we do only play music that's soft, strong, and very low. Yeah, oh. we, we do put a Signum logo on every piece of product, um, and because I'd like to think that some people do, then I think. I mean, why wouldn't you? I like you? the last one. Why yeah. wouldn't you? Yeah, that's,
2: that, this is. But equally, when it comes to design, I was something I was, I mean, it's a slightly bit of a sidetrack is some labels seem to design their covers as if people still spent all their time going through racks yes, sure. as opposed yeah, to yeah. going through GIFs on a website. Yeah. And yeah. you think, come on, guys, you know, there's also, it strikes me as well that there is, there's also opportunity
0: now on streaming platforms for, for the return of, of striking imagery, mm. uh, because the internet base or digital basically is driven by imagery first and then text. Um, and my mind leaps to—I think it's—is it Alessio Banks? Yeah. I was listening to an album of Brahms ballads, and I looked—I glanced at the image this morning. On you saw James <laughs> Dean, didn't you? <laughs> no, no.
1: I looked. I looked. I glanced at the image this
0: morning, and I thought it looks like he's preparing himself to to catch a tennis ball. It's—it's it's a. I and I actually that reaction, even though it may not seem very serious, is for me is quite important because it says that it's. that's the first thing that I think mm. when I see that particular album. So there's an association made. Similarly, on Deutsche Grammophon, um, what's his name? Daniel Trifonov, his Rachmaninoff album, when he sat in a train carriage with a cloth cap on it. You get, they're, they're very emotive, they're very evocative images, which are really valuable now in the same mm. way the LPs
2: were. But equally you could take a, for instance, why not have different images according to which kind of consumer you're wanting to capture? You could do that because, mm. I mean, there's, you know, the tra- classic thing was when you used to rotate images on the front page of a website to see which one got higher click through. You could have an image that is more tailored towards people who think, oh, that, that's a nice, acute looking artist. Another one who think, oh, I'm more interested in the, in the repertoire. You, you could highlight the repertoire, as opposed to the artist, for argument's sake. I mean, you know, so there's there that sounds a... like almost like a Facebook thing, but there, but, but this sort is of this is the way, this is the way it works. That it is it's about manipulation. But I mean, you know, fortunately, we're working with a kind of product that deserves to be manipulated and sold. What 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 I fear is that if we carry on doing things the way they've always been done, is that that market is is inevitably going to diminish because there are all kinds of. I mean, it's a whole other discussion, you know, uh, about. The core classical market is. It, there are different ways of selling the core classical product. We know that. We, we, we know that. And, but it's very easy these days. You know, in the old days, you couldn't put different. You didn't sell different covers on a on a on a product. But these days, you can stick a different gif. If it doesn't work, stick it, Stick up a different gif.
0: Why not? I hadn't even considered yeah. that. Mm. Um, if you were setting up a record label now, would you do it? Yes. Would you Absolutely. do anything differently? Uh, would you have to do anything differently? Do you think?
1: I don't think I'd do anything different. We, we've evolved and changed so much over the last 20 years. I'd like to think that where we are now is where I'd like to be now, but that's not where we're going to be in a year or two years. We have to continue evolving as the, the business changes. Um, but I think if I, was, if I was starting from scratch, I'd start from where we currently are, but keep a, a, a watchful eye on what's, what's changing and what's happening and how you reach your consumer. It sounds like a fragile line of work. Is it fragile? I don't know. Um, I would say yes, it's fragile.
0: <laughs> don't sound convinced. I don't
1: think where we are is a fragile position. We're quite lucky in that we have a, you know, a recording company as well as a record label. Do you mean the sector? Or the, or the genre rather? No, I don't think the genre is that fragile. I think, you know, there, there are so many changes. There are labels that are disappearing. There are shops that are disappearing. So, in that respect, yes, it's fragile. But, you know, the, the, the classical business has been going for mm. hundreds and hundreds of years. And it's just changing and evolving.
2: And I think one of the great advantages is it has a core of people who re- who are really, really passionate about the product. I mean, if you go onto Twitter, there's a whole bunch of... Opera my thing. There's a whole bunch of opera fanatics chatting away on Twitter. And... Okay, it's not a vast number of people, but my God, they're committed, and my God, do they know what they're talking yes, about. And they're so, and are vocal. And imagine, if, you, if, you're a, if, you're, if you've got a consumer product and you have a core of, of consumers who are that passionate and spend that much money on the product, which they do, you know, people spend £200 on a ticket to go to the opera, not, mm-hmm. not rich people, that, that says a lot about how much they care about it. And that's a huge, huge advantage for any industry to have, and I sometimes think the industry forgets that, and they, just, they, they feel backed into a corner, and start and, and feel they have to, they're back to a corner at the same time, they feel they're having to push out a positive message about how wonderful <laughs> I think everything the is. The key is, though, is,
1: is keeping a new audience coming to
2: classical. And
1: they've always done it. And I don't see any reason why they won't in 10 years, 50 years, 100 years. It's just going to be a different way of accessing yeah. music. And, and, I,
2: and I think that that difference in accessing has happened astonishingly quickly. I mean, it's it happened, has. You know, yeah. In the time that you were working at the dot com, it was that, mm. that's. that's Ancient history now. It is. And yeah. you know, but it's really the last 10 years, isn't it? Nothing's yeah.
1: different to what we were offering. It's just now um, it's there's, more, to, there's broadband now, yeah. which there wasn't then, yeah. and that's what killed us. Um, but the
2: way yeah. our habits have changed, the, uh, my habits have changed phenomenally mm. over the last 10, 15 years. I mean, I, I consume music in a different way these yeah. days.
1: But a lot of people do. You, you don't have to put together a well-conceived 74-minute program now because some, some people are going to just listen to one track. Mm. Um, it doesn't mean you don't still put together you know, that seventy-four-minute program for the people who will buy it on CD. But you know, imagine the ANR people from twenty years ago, when before even shuffle was invented on the CD player, mm-hmm. they'd have turned in their graves. Um, but now, <laughs> you know, it, the consumer—were they alive
2: at the time? <laughs> <laughs> this is the question. Maybe <laughs> you not. Know, I mean, yeah, the, the
1: consumer is is, is right. Uh, I
0: have some I have some practical questions before we wrap up. Uh, which is I, uh, the announcement drove me to the specialist music chart uh, and when I when I arrived at the chart I felt relieved. Um, so I've explored all sorts of different things that I hadn't, hadn't previously been aware was, were in existence including artists. Uh, I'm wondering do you happen to know what the sales requirements are for inclusion on that chart? That's not a test I'm just asking you so that I'd have to research yes. it. Can you tell me? No, <laughs> at least not until the button stops. Exactly. Okay. Um, uh, is there anything else that, that you'd like to say
1: that I haven't asked you about? Oh, there's probably plenty, but um, no, I'm very happy. I'd be interested to know how far down your page you got. We didn't get to your article, but I'll mention it in the in the sign off at the end. Of that. That's section okay. well, We talked around
0: uh, the article. Uh, we got most of the way down the down Excellent. the list of things.
2: That's yes. good. So. Uh, as I say, I just think, I think the interesting thing is that I th- I think the industry needs to really get to grips with this I, I, as as an industry. I don't think it's about one label doing it for on one because they're all trying to get the same consumer. And, and I, you know, I, I know I know it's something people talk about, but as as someone who buys buys as well as is on the selling side, I I haven't seen a great evolution in the way classical music sold to me either live music or recorded music and that, that, that interests me and concerns me because everything else around us has changed so much I think
1: you're right it, it's, there's not much change in the way it's sold to you there's a big change in the way you can access, access it, it. Yeah, exactly. and those, those two things yeah. need to come yeah. together I mean
2: they, peop, people ought to know by now what my set of tastes is mm. because I'm out there I'm buying stuff I'm talking about it I'm writing about it and and yes it feels like a it feels like a manual process
0: at the moment I know people who know what I'm interested in that's mm. why they keep contacting me mm. uh, it, uh, it would alarm me if I was to discover that the people at Spotify didn't know what I was
2: interested mm. in mm-hmm.
1: and I hope to God that they do I think that would become more sophisticated because that's based on a consumption model and they know what you've listened to mm. what I really don't like is if I've bought someone a present on Amazon um, and suddenly Amazon thinks it was for me yeah. and All the marketing is then based on that album that I bought for someone else, which I may hate. I suddenly want to know what your purchase is is on Amazon. All all, all (laughs) the (laughs) knee pads I bought for my
0: mother. (laughs) Uh, Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you.